0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always excited by developments going on with new power sources. Well, Stanford University scientists have been exploring a type of battery technology that's actually decades old, but it offers nearly six times the capacity of lithium-ion batteries. Curiously enough, it's based on chlorine, but the problem has always been that the trick only works once. In other words, when the battery's depleted, that's it. Well, they've developed a new version of the chlorine battery that's rechargeable. The battery is described as an alkaline metal chlorine battery, and it's based on chemistry that first emerged way back in the 1970s called lithium thionyl chloride. These batteries have high energy density, but they rely on highly reactive chlorine, and that makes them unsuitable for anything other than just one use. In a regular rechargeable battery, the electrons travel from one side to the other during discharging and then they revert back to their original form as the battery is recharged. But in the old-style chlorine batteries, the sodium chloride or lithium chloride is converted to chlorine and that's way too reactive to be converted back to chloride, at least not very efficiently. All you chemistry majors are following along, of course, right? The research solved this problem by making a new electrode material out of porous carbon and it acts like a sponge, soaking up the nasty chlorine molecules, safely storing them to be converted back into sodium chloride. When it's time to recharge, the trapped chlorine gets converted to NaCl, otherwise known as good old table salt, and it's ready to store power once again. So far, they've subjected their prototype battery to more than 200 charge and discharge cycles without any problems and they're sure they can push that number much higher. For comparison, a well-maintained lithium-ion battery is good for about 500 to 1000 cycles. And here is the good part. A lithium-ion battery has an energy density of 200 milliamp hours per gram of electromaterial. material. Okay? The chlorine battery try 1200 milliamp hours per gram. At the moment the research team imagines that the battery will find use in hearing aids or in remote controls or perhaps being used to power devices that only require infrequent charging like satellites or remote sensors. For use in smartphones and devices such as amateur transceivers the scientists are going to need to scale up the battery and engineer a suitable structure. Time will tell. I'm on the telephone with Carl Luchelswab, K9LA, and Carl's the director of the ARRL Central Division, but he's also our go-to guy for everything about propagation, radio technology in general, and, and so on. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Steve. Hope you're doing well there. You too. You know, in the December issue of QST, there's an article with your byline called How the Transatlantic Test of 1921 initiated international amateur radio communication. There are a lot of people out there, I suspect, who have no idea what the transatlantic test really was. Uh, can you
2: elaborate on that? Sure. Well, we all probably know about Marconi in uh, 1901 when he uh, heard uh, the uh, Poldhu uh, England station, and that kind of started things off, um, there's always some controversy on if it really happened, but uh, let's just assume it happened. I believe it probably could have. In 1921, uh, amateurs knew that commercial stations were making it across the Atlantic to England uh, and Europe with no problem. And many of them thought that uh, the amateur radio people with even more modest antennas and uh, less power uh, should be able to do that, too. So. In uh, February 1921, there was a transatlantic test, but it didn't result in any Americans being heard in England. I have to mention that uh, this was a one-way test because the power limits uh, over in England were kind of strict, and nobody thought England could come the other way. So uh, February didn't work out too good. Uh, So the ARRL... Decided that uh, hey, December 1921 was going to be the second shot at this, and uh, to show how serious they were, they sent uh, Paul Godley, who was 2ZE at the time, over to uh, Great Britain to listen for American stations, and he took over, uh, you know, some of the best receiving apparatus that they had at the time, which was uh, a superheterodyne receiver. And it was fortuitous that he met some guy named Harold Beveridge on the boat over to England. And Harold Beveridge convinced him to uh, try his newly patented receiving antenna system, which he called a Beverage antenna. And, of course, those uh, <laughs> are used nowadays uh, very effectively for low-band operators. So the uh, 9- December 1921 transatlantic test was very successful uh, a number of uh, spark stations from america were heard over there and even more cw stations and of course that helped uh, promote cw as it uh, was easier it took up less bandwidth and more of the power was concentrated in a uh, a smaller much smaller bandwidth what
1: frequencies did these tests take place on carl
2: Oh, they were on around 200 meters, maybe a little bit longer, which is a little bit lower frequency. Uh, It's interesting to note that the Radio Act of 1912 uh, by uh, the forerunner to the FCC regulated us to 200 meters and lower, which is one and a half megahertz and higher. But there wasn't much policing of that. And so that's why in 1921 there were still some stations uh, on 200 meters and a little bit lower even. But it worked. And, of course, uh, most of the stations in America ran around a kilowatt, and they had some pretty decent antennas, um, verticals with uh, some top loading and also a very good ground system. It it, it was the start of DXing.
1: I recall reading somewhere that – at that time, it was believed that frequencies higher than 200 meters were useless. Is that
2: true? Yes, that's what the thought was back then. And that's why uh, commercial operators in the military wanted us on sh- wavelengths shorter than 200 meters, because they thought that was a wasteland, that we would just make context, uh, basically line of sight. And that was about it. So we wouldn't interfere with anyone. But uh <laughs> That was a great thing that they did for us, although they didn't realize it. <laughs> and uh, of course, am- amateur radio and uh, ingenuity and uh, uh, never say die attitude showed that uh, wavelengths shorter than 200 meters, oh, frequencies greater than one and a half megahertz, were very good for transatlantic and even uh, around the world type propagation. And
1: that was a couple of years before the existence of the ionosphere was ever proven,
2: right? That's right. In 1902, I believe it was, because of the Marconi feat, there was an American, uh, uh, Arthur Kennelly, and uh, a British, uh, Oliver Heaviside, and they both postulated at about the same time, that there was probably an electrically conducting layer up there, and that's what enabled the Marconi feat to be established or to be uh, accomplished. So although that was postulated in 1902, it wasn't until I believe it was 22 and 23 where Sir Edward Appleton over in the uh, UK uh, actually uh, timed a, a wave set on uh, a low frequency, and he determined that the height of that conducting layer layer was about hundred kilometers, which uh, that's what our e layer is and he named it e because of it stood for e stood for electric, and so that's how the e region <laughs> was named, and of course, we discovered uh, later on a lower region, the D region, and a higher region the f region and the B and F are just just follow because uh, uh, their uh,
1: range about the uh, F, the E layer. Now, the frequencies in use during the transatlantic test were they propagated? Do you think by ionospheric propagation? Uh, I mean, surely they must have been, even at that frequency. Yeah,
2: yeah I believe so. If you, if you look at uh, ground wave curves. Uh, and I think we understand ground wave very well ground wave was just out of the range so the only thing left was uh, ionospheric propagation uh, multi hop probably the likely method although uh, doing some ray tracing on that path back in 1921 it may have included some ducted modes in other words uh, there's a the, the electron density goes very low right above the E region peak at night, and uh, a wave can duct in that valley uh, without ground reflections and without going through the uh, absorbing region again. So it was ionospheric, whether it was multi-hop or ducting, uh, we'll probably never know, but the fact is that either one could have gotten a signal there, so uh, we're pretty sure It was ionospheric, and it wasn't, you know, it's like some flying saucer reflecting something up above us.
1: Do we know what the solar cycle was doing at that time? Sure.
2: Yeah, and December 21 was solar minimum, and what that also says is that solar minimum, the uh, Earth's magnetic field, was relatively quiet, so the K-index was quite low, and that undoubtedly helped uh, the propagation on these lower frequencies. So it was kind of kind of fortuitous that uh, uh, the test took place then. And you think back to December 1901 when Marconi uh, heard uh, the station at Poldoo, England, Uh, that was also around solar minimum. So things kind of worked out. I would say so. Yeah, I I live
1: in Connecticut, Carl, and oh, about an hour's drive away is the town of Greenwich. And went down there once, and they have a... Stone monument at the site or near the site of one BCG, which was a transmitter there during the uh, re- well transmitting and receiving station during the transatlantic test. Uh, that was not the only station, though. Correct? There were several involved. Yes. Well, there were uh,
2: probably upwards of twenty uh, spark stations and CW stations. Um, one BCG was a CW station. And he had a great setup. He was running a kilowatt input on CW. Uh, His wavelength was about 230 meters. That's 1.3 megahertz. And his antenna was a a T antenna. In other words, it was up up about 75 feet high with some horizontal additions to top load it. And, of course, he also had a a great uh, counterpoise, a great ground system for his vertical antenna. Uh, one BCG was issued to Minton Cronkite, and he was one of the operators. Uh, there was uh, quite a few operators there. One was uh, Edwin Armstrong, who has oh. was, uh, gone down in fame for uh, receiver design, etc. He was one of the operators, too. Well, the Armstrong, as in FM? Yes. yes. FM yes. radio.
1: Okay. Yes. And how long did the test last? Were the, Was it just one evening,
2: several evenings? It was several evenings. And uh, Paul Godley, a 2ZE over there in Scotland, that's where he ended up because it was much quieter than somewhere around the London area. And he uh, had a very good log. And one of the farthest west stations he heard was in Indianapolis, which <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, most of the stations, of course, were on the east coast. But uh, there there were a couple in Pennsylvania and also Indianapolis made it through, which uh quite surprising. But it just shows that uh, things can uh, work good at times. And did he, uh, of course,
1: note what sort of uh, signal strengths he was receiving at that end? I don't think they
2: had any signal strength indicator like we have nowadays. But he did acknowledge that one BCG was the loudest CW. Uh, And it was probably, uh, uh, you know, just a, uh, uh, I hear you loud and "Mm, you're kind of weak type stuff. Once he finally returned to the United
1: States and then not long thereafter, they published the results in QST magazine. Uh, Yes. What did that do, Carl, to amateur radio as a whole
2: in terms of operating equipment and so on from that point onward? Well, I think it started the development of better CW transmitters more powerful, uh, eventually VFOs, <laughs> and also uh, the development of better super heterodyne receivers, which uh, really shown here during these February uh, or December 1921 tests. And did- uh, antennas, antennas haven't, you know, for those lower frequencies, haven't changed that much. You need uh, lots of wire to <laughs> have an efficient antenna and you need a good ground system. So uh, that really didn't uh, take us too too much farther of course the beverage antenna it, that's where it got its start here in december 1921 and like i mentioned earlier uh many uh many people use beverage antennas to uh improve their signal to noise ratio uh here in uh well all around the world right, people use beverages how long was it
1: before ham started to say look this is going on at 200 meters what if we tried shorter wavelengths and moved up into eighty meters, forty meters? How long did that take?
2: Oh shoot, Steve, I don't know, um, but I'm sure it was a continual progress. I have to wonder how
1: long before uh, they finally moved into twenty meters and discovered yeah, that. Uh, no kidding.
2: They didn't need well, much. Even, <laughs> yeah, even set forty meters would uh, would have uh, offered a great improvement because. Uh, the lower you go in frequency, the more ionospheric absorption. In other words, your signal strength is reduced. So as you go up in frequency, you don't lose as much signal, and uh, y- you had much better success. Uh, I don't know when that happened,
1: though. You mentioned that the stations who were involved in the tests that many of them were using uh, 1,000 watts output. Um, other 1,000 watts. Yes. 1,000 watts input. Input. In- input. input. Yes. Other stations at that time, now I'm thinking military, commercial, what kind of power were they using? Oh, multiple
2: kilowatts, yes, to make sure that they could get across the Atlantic uh, reliably. Uh, They were, uh, you know, 10 kilowatts. I think there might have even been some 50 kilowatt stations. So, (laughs) wow! uh, it's great that amateurs did it with... uh, uh one kilowatt now i don't know what the, the i mentioned 10 kilowatts and 50 i don't know if that was input or output but still uh, that was significantly above what amateurs were doing at the time and i don't know if there was a, a limit on amateur power at the time or not i have uh, no idea yeah all i know is the radio act just said hey you guys go uh shorter wavelengths than 200 meters where you can play around and not bother anybody and and little right. little did they know Little did they know. Oh, yeah. I, I, I do know that uh, one of the great things that came out of us moving to shorter and shorter wavelengths was amateur radio operators discovered transequatorial propagation in 1947 on six meters. Uh, we were the first ones to notice it. So uh, that's uh,
1: eventually where it ended up. And we were among the first to explore uh,
2: beyond six meters as well. You bet. Yes. Yes. So the amateur radio can-do attitude really helps. And, of course, there are people out there who just want to push the envelope, and we certainly did. And uh, who knows what's going what the future is going to bring.
1: Well, Carl, this is very informative, and I'll look forward to reading your article when it comes out.
0: Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright arrl and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.